Good morning. Guys, it's good to see you guys. Plano Bible study. Woo! Love it. Love it. Okay, so in case you're wondering, the scooter is mine, the um the cane is mine, the polio is mine. I own it. I've had it since I was six months old, so that's what's going on there. Um I am, my name is Sue Bolin. I am thrilled beyond words to be here with you this morning. And I get to give an overview of Exodus, which we'll be doing all year. Um, And I want to start off by giving you the 35,000 foot version of what are we going to be doing this year? Because the guys at the Bible Project put together this amazing kind of animated um, video that will give you the big picture now so that you know where we're headed for the whole rest of the year. Let's talk about the book of Exodus. Now, you're probably familiar with this book because of the epic story of Moses leading Israel out of slavery from Egypt. Yeah, but that's just the first half of the book. The second half has Moses giving the Ten Commandments to Israel along with these blueprints for making a sacred tent. Now right here in the middle is the story that connects these two halves together and it all takes place at the foot of a famous mountain. Okay, so let's start back at the beginning. So the first thing we have to remember is we're continuing the story from Genesis. Yeah, in Genesis, God promised Abraham that through his family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Genesis ends with Abraham's family down in Egypt. When Exodus begins, 400 years have passed. The family grows and becomes the people group now called Israel. But there's this huge problem because the Israelites are enslaved to this king of the Egyptians, a guy called Pharaoh. This guy is really bad news. Yeah, he's horrible. He, he disregards their humanity. He brutally enslaves them. And he even orders that all of the Israelites' sons should be killed by throwing them into the Nile River. He wants to wipe these people out the worst character in the Bible so far. Here's where we meet an Israelite woman who wants to save her son. And so she does throw him in the river, but safely in this little reed basket. And Pharaoh's daughter finds this baby and takes him as her own. And this is the boy who grows up to become Moses, the man who will rescue Israel from slavery. So Moses grows up, and one day, much later in his life, he has this crazy encounter with God where he comes across a bush that's on fire, but it isn't actually burning up. And God speaks from the bush, and he appoints Moses as the man he will use to deliver Israel. So Moses goes to Pharaoh to tell him this this news, that God wants his people free. And Pharaoh, he just pretty much laughs at him. He's like, who's this God Yahweh? And in fact, he's so offended by this request, he decides to make the Israelites work even harder. So discouraged, Moses goes back to God and says, listen, this plan's not going to work. But God repeats his promise that he's going to rescue them. And in fact, it's right here for the first time in the Bible that we hear the word redemption. It literally just means to purchase a slave's freedom. But God here uses this word to describe what he's going to do for enslaved Israel. And God knows Pharaoh is going to resist. So he sends 10 different plagues, one after another, like turning water into blood, sending all sorts of pests and disease. These plagues are really severe. They are severe, but we need to understand that the story is presenting these as acts of divine justice against one of the worst oppressors in the story of the Bible. And they're all aimed 
at the purpose of rescuing these enslaved people and defeating the gods of Egypt. This all comes to a climax at the 10th plague, where God's going to kill the firstborn sons across all Egypt. Every house, it's pretty rough. It is, but it's also God's response for how Pharaoh killed the Israelite sons. Now as you turn the page, you suddenly get two long chapters of detailed instructions for what's essentially throwing a dinner party with a recipe for a lamb. Yeah, but this lamb is super important. God tells the Israelites to pick it out and to prepare it to be eaten. And they're supposed to take its blood and then paint it all over the doorframe of their house. And anyone who is in that house will be spared from this final plague. And so this meal, which is called Passover, it commemorates this key moment in the story where God brings his justice on human evil, but also shows mercy by providing this substitute. This final plague makes Pharaoh angry, and he demands that Israel gets out of Egypt, which is great. But suddenly as they leave, Pharaoh changes his mind. He has a change of heart. But on top of that, we're also told that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Why would God do that? Well, what we need to remember is that over and over in this story, Pharaoh has already chosen to harden his own heart. And so at this point, Pharaoh, he's not just evil, he's become monstrously evil. Even his own advisors think that he has gone way too far. And so how is God supposed to deal with such an extreme form of evil? And what we see in this story is that God uses his power to lure evil into its own destruction. Pharaoh and his army are destroyed in the Red Sea as Israel passes into freedom. And after this, we find the very first song of worship in the Bible as the people praise God for redeeming them. And it's in this story that the word salvation is also used for the first time, which means simply to be rescued from danger. Now that they're saved, you would think that everything should be great. But the story quickly turns. The Israelites start wandering in the desert. They're tired, hungry, lost. And you start to wonder, what's God doing? What were they saved for? And we learn the answer to that question in the very next story, which ties the two parts of this whole book together. The first half of the book of Exodus tells the story of ancient Israel being rescued from slavery. And when people say the Exodus story, those are the chapters they're referring to. But the book has a second half where Moses gives the Ten Commandments to Israel along with these instructions about building a sacred tent. And what links these two halves together is this crucial story. The people of Israel, they're out in the middle of nowhere. They find themselves at the foot of this mountain called Sinai. And here, God's presence comes dramatically down in the form of a violent storm cloud. Now let's stop a second and talk about this concept of God's presence because it's really important for the rest of the book. At the beginning of the Bible, in the Garden of Eden, humanity was in God's presence presence. They had this close relationship with him and it was good. But humanity rebels and the relationship is fractured and access to God's presence is lost. But God promised Abraham that he would restore his blessing to all of the nations. And that includes this restoration of relationship and access to God's presence. So here at Sinai, God's presence is now right here in front of them. And it's actually quite frightening. And he's here to invite Israel into this unique and close relationship with him. And the word used to describe this relationship is covenant. It's like a legal agreement between God and Israel. And it's unique because up till now, God hasn't asked Israel to do anything in return, just to trust him. But here on this mountain, God is going to ask Israel to do something. A lot of things, actually. He gives them a whole set of laws. It includes the Ten Commandments. 
And if they obey these commandments, they will become the people who will represent God to the nations of the world. Like a priest would. Yeah, in fact, that's what God calls them to become, a kingdom of priests. And this is all connected back to the promise to Abraham that his family would become a blessing to the nations. Okay, but obeying these laws is going to be difficult because... There's a lot of them, and they set a really high standard. Though if you think about it, I mean, of anybody in the world who should be able to do it, I mean, it's these people who experienced firsthand God's grace and his power when he rescued them from slavery. And and they agree to obey the terms, but then they refuse to go into God's presence because it's, well, it's still a bit frightening. And since the people won't go up, Moses goes up to the mountain by himself to meet with God. But God still wants to be with all of his people. And so he says, okay, if the people won't come up here to me, I'll come down off this mountain to be with you all. And that's why he orders Moses to build this elaborate tent as a place where God's presence can be among his people. And that's why the next thing we get is seven chapters of extremely detailed architectural blueprints for this tent. It's really, really really long. But every detail is important and has some kind of symbolic value. For example, there's all this Garden of Eden imagery inside the tent. And it's to remind you that when you're in the tent, you are in God's presence. Then we get another six chapters describing how they built the tent, which is really just repeating the same blueprints word for word. Now let's back up because before the tent is finished, there's this super important story. Moses is coming off the mountain with the Ten Commandments and the blueprints in his hands, and he finds Israel breaking the first two commands of the covenant. Don't have any other gods before me and... Don't worship idol statues. Right. And so here we are immediately after agreeing to the covenant. They're throwing this ritual party. They're worshiping an idol. And so God says to Moses, you know what? This is is not going to work. I should just wipe these people out and start over with you. But Moses reminds God of his promise to Abraham and pleads with God to spare them, which is a really weird conversation. Why would... God need to be reminded of something. Yeah, it does seem odd. But this dialogue is inviting us into God's experience of grief and pain due to Israel's actions. And he really could walk away. But instead, this God chooses faithfulness to his own promises, even though he knows it's going to cost him. So we come to the end of the book. The tabernacle's built. God's presence comes down off the mountain to fill it. And in the final scene, Moses goes to enter the tabernacle to be in God's presence. But he can't. He's actually not able to go inside, and that's how the book ends. Why can't he go in? That was the whole point. So when Israel worshipped the golden calf, it was like a slap in the face to God's faithfulness. And so Moses can't just waltz into the tent like everything's just fine. There's a deeper problem still in this relationship. Will they ever be able to fix the relationship and go into God's presence? Well, that's what the next book, Leviticus, is all about. Now you know. That's where we're going. I love seeing the big picture of where we're headed, which is why my favorite app on my phone is Google Maps. You are here. This is how to get to where you want to go. That video is a picture of where we are. We haven't even gotten our our books yet. And that we're heading all the way to the end of Exodus. Now, um, I do have some time left. So instead of just saying, well... That's the story. We're going to dive in. I would like to also take a look at Exodus from a little bit different perspective. One of the things that I have discovered over the 42 years of walking with Jesus that I have had the privilege of doing is that there is this big understanding in a lot of people, um, a 
a big misunderstanding among a lot of people that there is one kind of God in the Old Testament who's full of wrath and he's mad and he's easily irritated and he's really kind of like Zeus. Um, and so he's, he's always got a lightning bolt in his, in his hand ready to throw down onto earth. And then comes Jesus in the New Testament. <gasps> All of a sudden, God is different. Is we have precious little Jesus, meek and mild. And those are two very different kinds of gods. That's not the way it is. We only have one God who does not change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Jesus, when Jesus comes in the New Testament times, he explains to us what his father is really like and clears up some of the misconceptions. We only have one God, and that is the God of grace. I want to talk to you for a little bit about grace this morning and how we can find grace all over Exodus. Grace means undeserved favor. Pastor Mark Driscoll, um, I loved his, his idea. It's even a, a better description of grace as ill-deserved favor. That's when God gives his favor, not just when we don't deserve it, but we for sure deserve the opposite. Um, it's, it's really about God giving us what we don't deserve. And to give an example of that, I put a pink slip, a little pink post-it note under the chair in one of the chairs in this room. Look under your, on your right side, reach under, and feel for a pink slip. Donna, I just happened to know this person. I did not know if she was going to sit. Donna, come on, come on up and take that bag over there. Right over there on the step. Y'all, I am a calligrapher. I have been doing lettering for 35 years. Go ahead and, and show. Come on up. So I put together a little gift. Which, go ahead and, well, let me read it because I'm on the mic. <laughs> this says, may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So this is for you. Did you do anything to earn it? Did you do anything to deserve it? Well, that's grace. <laughs> There's an example of grace. You get to take that home. It's not just a prop. You get to take it home. <laughs> that would be mean, wouldn't it? So thank you for being, thanks for playing. <laughs> grace is when God gives us what, he doesn't deserve, what we don't deserve. But it's more than that. I love my very favorite definition of grace comes from John Ortberg, who's pastor at Menlo Park Presbyterian in California. He calls it the offer of God's ceaseless presence in irrational love that cannot be stopped. He says that grace is the flow, and I'm going to, these, these four red words, I'm going to zero in on a little bit more in the next couple minutes. The flow of God's power and presence, and favor in your life, moment by moment, that enables you to do whatever it is that God has for you to do. That's what grace looks like in our lives. First of all, let me talk a little bit about the flow of God's grace. If we open the shutter in the morning, 
the light will pour in. We don't need to beg and beseech it to pour in. It'll pour in if we let it. Light just flows through windows. Water flows through floodgates. We don't have to go, water, please flow. It just flows. We don't have to beg it or plead it to to flow. It just flows if we let it. God's grace is like that. God's flow of his undeserved favor will permeate our whole life if we just let it. We don't need to beg and plead him for his grace. Just open the window of your heart and let it come in. There's a flow to grace, but it's also about power. I love the story about this little boy who was spending his Saturday morning playing in his sandbox. And he had his box of cars and trucks and his plastic pail and a shiny red plastic shovel. And in the process of creating roads and tunnels in the soft sand, he discovered that in the middle of his sandbox, there was this big old rock. And he dug around the rock and he managed to dislodge it from the dirt. And with a little bit of struggle, he pushed it and he nudged the, the rock across the, the sandbox using his feet. But when he got to the edge of the sandbox, he found that he could not roll that great big rock up and over the little wall. But that little boy was determined, and he shoved, and he pushed, and he pried. But every time he thought he had made some progress, the rock tipped and then fell back into the sandbox. And the little boy grunted and, sh- and struggled and pushed and shoved, but his only reward was to have the rock roll back crashing his in on his little chubby fingers. Finally, he burst into tears of frustration. This whole time, his dad is standing at the window in the house watching this drama unfold. And just at the moment that the tears fell from his eyes, this sh- large shadow falls across the little boy. And he says gently but firmly, son, why didn't you use all the strength that you had available? And he said, Daddy, I did. I did use all the strength that I had. And his father said, no, son, you didn't. You didn't use all the strength that you had. You didn't ask me. And with that, he reached down, picked up the rock, and removed it from the sandbox. Grace means God gives us his power in our lives. All we need to do is ask him for it. But grace is also God's presence in our lives. I love that that's one of the elements of the, the video that we saw. I have this picture of the Golden Gate Bridge. During the initial stages of constructing it, 23 workers fell to their deaths. And finally, halfway through the project, a large net was placed underneath the bridge. And from then on, only 10 men actually fell and none of them died. All of them were caught by the net. When the men knew that they were safe, their productivity rose by 25% because they were not afraid of falling and dying anymore. So they were able to pursue their work with much greater freedom and effectiveness than before. That's a picture of what God has done for us. Stretched beneath us, widely stretching from eternity past to eternity future, is God's perfect grace assuring every every believer in Jesus that we can never fall from his favor. No matter how much we falter or fail, we can never plunge past the grace of God. 
We can think of grace as like God's hand underneath us, always ready to catch us when we fall. I, my son lives in San Francisco, and every time I see a picture of the Golden Gate Bridge, I imagine the hand of God underneath that bridge going, you're there for me, Father. I know you will catch me if, if I fall. But finally, grace is also God's favor on our lives. There was a little boy, Matt, who got up from his nap one day, and he said, Mommy, guess what? I had a dream about Jesus. And she said, Really? Well, what did Jesus say to you? And he said, Nothing. And she said, Well, what was Jesus doing in your dream? And he said, Nothing. And she said, Well, Matt, I don't understand. If Jesus didn't say anything and he wasn't doing anything, what was happening in your dream? Matt was quiet for a moment, and then with a wiggle and a grin, he looked up and he said, he just stood there and liked me. (laughs) Oh, that's what grace looks like. When somebody likes you, their eyes light up when they see you. Did you know that God's whole face lights up when he looks at you? The Bible talks about his face shining on us. And the reason it shines on us is that he loves us. Beyond that, I mean, if we're mothers, we love our children, but we don't always like them. But God loves us and he likes us. That's what his grace looks like. As a matter of fact, grace is all over Exodus. It's all over from the beginning of this book to the end of the book. Grace is all over Exodus. Grace is all over Exodus. One more. There we go. (laughs) Thank you. So I went and took my Bible and and a pad of paper, and I went looking for evidence of grace in Exodus. I found 61 places of where, where grace shows up in the book of Exodus. I am not going to share them all with you this morning because you're very anxious to get to your small group, I know. But I would like to share with you some of the places where God's grace is stamped on the pages of Exodus that we're going to be going through this year. First of all, there's this wonderful spotlight on women, um, starting with the Hebrew midwives who interfered with Pharaoh's command that they that they kill all the boy babies. They're even named Shifra and Pua. The names of the, of the midwives are given to us and the name of Pharaoh isn't, I just think that's awesome. Moses' mother, who is named, not very many people's mothers are named in scripture. Jochebed is named. Pharaoh's daughter plays prominently in Exodus. Moses' wife, who has a name, Zipporah, she shows up prominently in Exodus. Moses' sister, Miriam, has a name, shows up in Exodus. There's this marvelous spotlight on women. That's about grace, given the culture, the old culture of many, many thousands of years ago where women were treated as property and were not respected. The story of how Moses' life was protected when he was a baby has grace all over it. His sister Miriam was keeping watch when his mother put him in the reed basket and set him in the water. Pharaoh's daughter just happened to see the basket with the crying baby in it. 
and she knew it was a Hebrew baby. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask. I'm going to find her, I'm sure. Um, was like, did mom wrap him in some sort of Hebrew blanket that, you know, the Hebrews had, but the Egyptians didn't? Or did she go to change his diaper and went, oh, this baby's circumcised. Don't know how she knew it was a Hebrew baby, but she knew. And so there's Miriam, his sister, and she volunteers. She goes, hey, would you like me to go get one of the Hebrew women to nurse him? Because, you know, this child needs a wet nurse. Sure. And in one of the most amazing elements of grace in the entire Bible, Pharaoh's daughter says, ends up speaking to Moses' own mom and says, you nurse him for me and I'll pay you. Oh, I love that. That's just amazing. So she takes him back into her home where he, she lays into his heart the foundational years. Those first four years in a baby's life are so important of what we get to do as mothers, whether you're of a baby's um, actual mother or you're like a grandmother, another woman figure in their life. He got a love and a sense of belonging and identity. That's how Moses knew he was a Hebrew because his mama laid it into his heart. And then when he gets older, God appears to Moses in a burning bush and he doesn't die. That's grace. When we see the plagues, there are four plagues of flies, the livestock, hail, and darkness where the people in Goshen, where the the Jewish people were, the Hebrew people, they were not affected by the plague because God's grace intervened. Then we have the Passover, the dinner party that they mentioned in the video where um, we have lamb is on the menu um, where there's this final plague in Egypt where the firstborn of every family that did not have the blood of the lamb painted on the the doorposts and the lintels of their of their homes was going to die but the Hebrews who obeyed God's command the angel of death passed over that home and the firstborn male um, the firstborn in that house was protected. So, and then they also instituted a special Passover meal where every element is symbolic and points God's people to him as the God who rescues, redeems, and reveals himself to them. And people are still doing the Passover meal today. And if you're really blessed, you get to hear from um, a Christian who understands what all the symbolism, how it connects to the Lord Jesus Christ. I love this element of grace. Moses and his brother Aaron repeatedly went to Pharaoh with Yahweh's message, let my people go. And Pharaoh kept saying no. But after that horrible last plague, the Egyptians told the Jews, go, 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 get out of here. We're all going to die. So here they were saying to Pharaoh, let my people go. And that's the cry of the, of the Egyptians was, go, get out of here. Now that happens about the same time as the original trick-or-treat. Because God told the people, the Egyptians, uh, told the Jews to go to their Egyptian neighbors and ask them with their bags open, do you have any gold, silver, treasures, precious jewels you'd like to give us? Wonderful clothing and God gave favor to the, um, the Hebrews as they went to their Egyptian neighbors and they plundered the Egyptians. They left with all this stuff. They literally went house to house. What do you want to put in my bag? 
it just cracks me up. That is grace. Now, with the um, Egyptian army bearing down on the Israelites, God divides the Red Sea so they can walk across, not in mud, on dry land. As a mother of boys, I so appreciate that God dried the, bo- the ocean bottom so that they were not going, mud, yes, <laughs> mud wrestling mama. Yeah, that would not have been good. That was grace. When they got to the other side, God sent the Egyptian army to follow them, and then the waters crashed in and wiped them out. That was grace. Then when they got to the other side, the people grumbled and complained when they had no water. Instead of asking God, they grumbled at Moses. And instead of zapping them, God gave them sweet water to drink. And then the people grumbled and complained when they had no food. Instead of asking God, they grumbled at Moses. And instead of zapping them, God gave them bread from heaven, manna, and he gave them quail to eat. And then the people grumbled and complained when they had no water again. And instead of asking God, they grumbled at Moses. And instead of zapping them, God had Moses strike the rock in the desert and he gave them lots of water. All that is grace. I love the element of um, community that shows up in this wonderful story in Exodus where the Amalekites are fighting with the Hebrews and Moses holds up his staff. And as long as he's holding up his staff, the the Israelites are winning the battle against the Amalekites. And then he'd get tired and it would go down and then the Amalekites would start to win. But he had his friends and brother, he had Aaron and her on either side of him. They held up his arms and he held up the staff and the three of them together because we need community. We need friends. He allowed him to keep the, the staff up, ra- raised up until they won the battle over the Amalekites. That's grace. Then God gives them the Ten Commandments up on the mountain. Those Ten Commandments and all the other rules that we're going to come across in Exodus, think of them as guardrails on the treacherous mountain roads of life. Guardrails are grace. It's an example of grace. And God's rules and commandments are guardrails. That's what grace is. And he even writes them on stone tablets for his people. He goes on beyond the Ten Commandments. He gives them more laws, more guardrails filled with grace, such as things like establishing cities of refuge for people that accidentally kill someone. And so instead of automatically you know, killing that person, they, they had a safe place to go. Now, I want you to know something about me. Um, I'm sure more will come out in the year ahead when I get to teach. But one of my identities, really my primary identity, is that I am God's party girl. And I love the fact that God commanded his people to party three times a year. Now, the Bible calls them festivals, but I know (laughs) that they were parties. I love that. In addition to that, he also commanded them to take a day of R&R, of rest and relaxation, once a week, because he knew that they needed it. He gave the Sabbath as his gift. Now, when Moses was up on the mountain talking to God, the people were down in the valley creating a golden um, calf idol to worship. It made God very angry, but he did not wipe them out. 
He gave Moses an opportunity to intercede for the people and to make a case for not killing off all of his two million plus people. The people broke the covenant that they agreed with God. Moses broke the, the stone tablets, and instead of God breaking them, God made new tablets. That's grace. Aaron, Moses' brother, cooperated with the people to make the golden calf and even said one of the most ridiculous things in the entire Bible. Oh, how did it get there? Well, they threw the gold in the fire and out jumped this calf. Oh, come on. That is really ridiculous. But he really did say it. And instead of God zapping him, God allowed him to become the first ever high priest. That is grace. Moses asked God to show him his glory. And God told him, I'm not going to show you my face because you never could see it and live. But I've, after I've passed by, because I'm going to put you in this, this cleft, this hiding place in the rock, I'm going to let you see my backsides, my, the after effects of my glory, my goodness on display. That's grace. After Moses came down from the mountain, His face was so radiant, so dazzling bright that he had to wear a veil over his face when he was with people. God's glory lingered on Moses in a visible way. That's grace. I've got two more. God let the people bring offerings to him for building the tabernacle and all the worship implements that they were going to need. God himself provided all the gold, the silver, the jewels, the bronze, all the things that they would need to worship him correctly because he had told them, go to your neighbors when you're still in Egypt and ask them with your bags open to trick or treat. And people filled up the bags and then they had things to give in the offering. They gave so freely from what God had given and put in their hands that they actually had to say, stop, we have more than enough. That's grace. And finally, at the end of Exodus, we see that the glory of God filled the tabernacle and God dwelled in the midst of his people just as he does today. That's one of the most amazing things about getting to live in the New Testament time. We get to be the tabernacle of God. He lives inside of us. We are all, those of us who have trusted in Christ, he lives inside of us. We are our own little individual tabernacles. Together we are a tabernacle of God. God is in this room, y'all. He is inside of us. He is being shiny from within. And we get a glimpse into what that's like in the book of Exodus. And I hope you not only enjoy this book, but I hope you enjoy going through it in the company of some wonderful people in our small groups. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the incredible blessing of coming to Bible study. Thank you for the magnificent curriculum that was written for just for us. It's never been used before. Thank you for your wonderful book of Exodus that has grace all over it. And I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see the many, many ways in which your face lights up when you look at us and allow us to see the places where you show your grace, not only in the pages of our Bibles as we do this study, but also in the pages of our lives as we learn to look to you and walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Sue. That was outstanding, wasn't it? That was great. Thank you.
So you guys can see we're in for a treat this uh, this year with Sue's teaching and then the others that we have that are coming. So um, thank you, Sue. That was great. Um, hope you guys get it that God's grace is sufficient even for you and for what God's called you to do, and he loves you. So thank you, Sue, again. Um, okay, great. Um, so a few things. First of all, I just want to point out your book. Uh, you should have gotten a book when you came in and then checked your name off the list and find, discovered which group you're in if you did not already know. In the back of your book, there is a um, part, thank you, there's a page in here that is um, where you can list everything that you learn about God's qualities. It's on page 85. So the first thing you can put on there now that we know is God is full of grace, Right. This is just a great, or if you have your journal, Exodus, the main character of Exodus is not Moses, and it's, it's not Pharaoh, it's God. And this would be a great um, exercise to go ahead and, and just keep a journal on what you learn about God. Um, it's kind of nice to know that he doesn't have the zapper, that he's ready to just, zoop, you did that wrong. <laughs> so, um, so that was a lot of fun. Thank you, Sue, for making that so much fun for us. Um, okay, so now down to a little bit of business before we let you go to your groups. First of all, um, as you get into your study this week, we the study is done um, in-house, but some of the Watermark staff put it together. Uh, one of the ladies is on wearing one of the green shirts that was on that team. But um, anyway, it... Um, it's just a great tool for you guys to have to take you through the book of Exodus. As you can see, there's so much in there and so much that you can apply. Um, but if there happens to be a week that you don't get through it, you are still welcome to come. We want you to be in your small groups. We want you to come and listen to the teaching, even if you don't have time to touch your lessons. So hear us say, we want you here, okay? Okay, the next thing is we want you to wear your name tags because – a lot, of, a lot of us, like me, um, don't remember names very well. So I may have known you for years, and for the moment, my, your name will slip my mind. I'm just that way. My mind is slippery. Wear your name tags, please, because you're a small group leader. I promise you, they are all outstanding. We've got some stellar ladies serving with us. So they, um, that it will help them tremendously to learn your names uh, as well. So if you could remember to bring that, um, and then your cell phones, if you could make sure that your cell phones are on silent um, as we just enter in worship with each other. And we will start at 1015 every week. So I know traffic is horrible, but we'd love to start on time so we can get through everything. Um, And then, let's see, for those who have little small kiddos, which um, the babies, I think it's four months when they start letting them into training ground. So... um, if you have one of those in here, they are more than welcome in here. We love babies in this church. We have lots of them, and lots of them on the way as well. Um, you are more than welcome to have them in here if they get fussy. We've got um, people that are more my age that love to get baby fixes that will help you with that. Uh, or you can feel free if, the, if your baby doesn't want to go to anyone else to take them out uh, and to walk them around out there and listen. Um, or if you need to nurse, we have a room over in training ground. I think it's room eight um, that you can go to to nurse or just have your, um, what did you call it, the hooter hider? Hooter hider. Um, <laughs> you can stay in here, whatever. Uh, just, you know, especially if you're in your small group, it can be a little 
bit distracting. So, okay, that was that was Liz's thing. I wish I could take the credit for that one. That was good. So, <laughs> okay, and when you also got your books, you should have gotten one of these. This is our memory verse for the whole year, okay? We're learning Psalm 103. Um, as you go through it, we've put some little things, symbols in there to help you um, memorize it. I don't think it's too daunting of a task. They don't, I mean, it's just a verse. Some of them are two verses a week, but a lot of them are words that you're familiar with, like, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. And that's most of the first verse right there. So um, we'll be doing that together as a large group. And then if you want to do it again in your small groups, you can. Um, But it might be very rewarding for you, not just on a spiritual side, but on a physical side later on uh, at the end of the year. So, um, yes. Okay, I think that we are ready to go to our small groups. So bef- uh, don't anybody move yet. What we're going to do is I'm going to ask the small group leaders for each group uh, to stand when I call your group number, and you guys should all know which group you're going to. Hopefully, everybody, you got your numbers as you came in. And then you can follow your group leader out to your room, and that will be where you will meet every week after the large group. So you'll come here first, and we'll get our teaching, and then you'll go to small group, okay? So, yes, but guys, what I need you to know is I need you all to be quiet as we go out so that the next group can get out to theirs and they can hear what we're doing, okay? Okay, great. So group one leaders, can you guys stand up? Who's, who are the group one leaders? Oh, there's, uh, okay, Marcy, and who's your... Oh, there you are, Joyce. Sorry, it's dark up here. I didn't see. Okay, so follow Marcy and Joyce here. If you're in group one, go ahead and go with these guys out to your room. Okay? Okay, and group two, I know, is Sean and... Okay, Randy, here we go. So if you're in group two, Sean and Randy are your leaders. And you guys can follow them to group two. Okay. Group three leaders. Trisha. Okay. And Amy. So if you guys are in group three, if you guys could stand up, Amy and Trisha will take you to room three. Okay. You got it? Okay. Group four leaders. Okay. Marie and Amy. We, haven't, we have three Amys with us this time. Okay, so uh, if you're in group, did I say three or four? Four, sorry. (laughs) Okay, group four. See, I told you my mind was slippery. Okay, you'll go with those guys. Uh, Group five leaders. Here we go, Pam, and who's your, oh, there she is, Sally. Okay, Sally's back here, and Pam's right here. So you guys will follow her out, these guys out. (laughs) Okay. Thank you, guys. Y'all are being so cooperative. This is awesome. Okay. Group six leaders. All right. Yay, they're right here. Kelly and Tiffany are your leaders. So group six, you will go with these two right here. Awesome. Okay. Group seven leaders. Okay. Leslie, I knew I was going to this Natalie. Natalie, I know you. I'm sorry. See, I told you guys this is what happens. I shouldn't even be trying to say names. <laughs> okay, if you guys are in group seven, this is your group. Okay. Group eight. 
Oh, there you go. Okay, where's Amanda? There she is. Amanda's back here, and Sue is over here. So you, uh, Amanda's back there if you guys want to go with her to, with group eight. And Sue will meet you there. <laughs> I think you guys are just around the corner, so not far. <laughs> okay, group nine. All right, Shelly and Patty are over here. Those are your leaders. Okay, we got group nine. Okay, and group ten. Okay, thank you for the help, Nikki. <laughs> All right, you guys have it. Your group grew. <laughs> okay, that's group ten. So group eleven. Yay! Yes, Jessica and Denise is back here with her hand up. Okay, and then last but not least, we have group 12. Okay, okay, we have Kristen and, oh, there she is. Okay, Rebecca Pettigrew.